I think the danger when sports people use their sporting prominence as a political pulpit is that it may turn people off the sport itself. As I say, uh, being a sports star, it doesn't necessarily make you the world's best human being, and it certainly doesn't make you a guru on politics. Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03-9946-4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life. And now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. And this episode will be the final episode of season one of Australia's Heartland. We had originally thought of just doing 12 episodes, but the feedback we got was so popular from our listeners and from IPA members that we decided to add a few more episodes to take us to the end of November and that gives us a nice 16 episode season one and we might touch on what all this means at the end of our discussion today Tony Uh, but otherwise we will get into today's discussion there is a lot of ground to cover as always and to begin with uh, we've got to talk about the new variant of COVID-19. There's always a new variant, it seems, just around the corner. This is the Omicron variant. There is, from a public policy perspective, some good news, I guess, which is the response so far from governments has been relatively tempered. Uh, There hasn't been a knee-jerk reaction to lockdown um, just yet. And so let's hope that it stays that way. Uh, Tony, What perspective can you give us on what governments should or should not be doing in response to this new variant? And the first thing is that we shouldn't be panicking. Uh, We've had uh, numerous variants over the course of the pandemic. Uh, This is simply the latest. Um, While um, all of them have sparked initial concerns, none of them have really been that much worse than the other in terms of the impact on people's health. Some have been more infectious than others, but in the end, whatever the variant, we just have to deal with it. We just have to live with it. And as we've been discussing now, Dan, for uh, quite a few weeks, I think that there has been uh, a bit of knee-jerk authoritarianism in our overall response to the pandemic. here in Britain, where I am, uh, at least for the next uh, 12 hours or so, uh, the response to the new variant has been a renewed uh, mask mandate in shops and public transport. And uh, as, as you know, um, I am deeply sceptical about masks in most contexts. Uh, as you know, the health advice on masks has been Uh, mixed and changing and I think a lot of the time uh, these masks have become 
symbolic uh, rather than practical. Uh, they're a symbol of uh, whether we think the virus is the most important thing in people's lives or whether the, we think that life is something just to be got on with. And uh, so I will be very, very, very happy to see the end of mask mandates. And um, it irks me that the British government, which has generally speaking been more liberal than others, uh, seems to have fallen back on masks uh, in, in fear of this new variant. And as I said, we've just got to take this in our stride. Uh, the last thing we should do is panic uh, because viruses mutate. It's just what they do. And our job is to be human and to get on with life and to make the most of each day uh, and not to live life in fear. Well, today in question time in Parliament, Tony, and I appreciate you may not have had a chance to, uh, to see this, but Scott Morrison said that uh, he was adamant that Australia would stay open over the Christmas period, at least uh, when it came to the domestic situation. But of course, uh, that raises the issue that the rules and the regulations uh, are primarily in the remit of the state governments. And so, you know, I reckon the federal government has been far too hands off on this issue and has largely allowed state governments to do what they want. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that with the, uh, with the powers the state governments have and the way in which they've been acting over the past 20 or so months, that there may be indeed a, a return to some of their more authoritarian um, approaches taken. Can you help us understand the dynamics at play here, Tony, between the federal and the state governments on this issue? Look, I, I can do my best, Dan. Look, uh, I was a health minister for four years under the Howard government, as you might remember, and the federally run parts of the health system back then were in pretty good shape. Uh, the big problem back then was the state of the public hospital system. And I was so often asked as federal health minister to do this and to do that to try to improve public hospitals. The problem was that the only thing I could do as the federal health minister to improve public hospitals uh, was to give the states more money. Uh, and they would gladly take the money, but they would rarely uh, do uh, what they were supposed to do in return. Uh, you would sometimes get them to change things in the short term, uh, but once the money was given, you were stuck with giving it forever, and the change rarely lasted beyond a year or two. So the truth is that the federal government has much less real authority over vast areas of government uh, than the public tend to think, and often enough uh, than we in, in federal government would like. So I suspect that uh, there are all sorts of things that the states have done over the last 18 months or so uh, that Scott Morrison and Greg Hunt would not like one little bit. Uh, but the question is, if you can't change it, how much do you complain about it? Because disagreeing with the states uh, without being able to change it uh, can often make what is an unsatisfactory situation even worse because it just makes you look um, um, impotent. Uh, uh, and, and so it's not easy. Um, uh, this pandemic, uh, it's been absolutely unprecedented in policymakers' lifetimes. Uh, it's exposed uh, some of the 
difficulties inherent in the governance of a federation. Um, and, and I think we've got to cut uh, our federal government some slack here. Uh, I haven't agreed with everything the federal government has done and said, uh, but I think we've got to cut them a fair bit of slack when it comes to blaming them for the things that the states have done that we don't like uh, for the simple reason that other than object uh, rhetorically, it, it wouldn't have been easy uh, for, them, for them to make a difference. Now, I suppose with the wisdom of hindsight, we could, we could say, well, uh, at the outset, um, using the quarantine powers under the Constitution, uh, the federal government uh, uh, could have legislated to override the states. But uh, I think at the time, uh, that would have been extremely divisive and arguably it would have distracted from the immediate practical health response so again, um, uh, frustrating though it is, and, and I suspect that I've been as frustrated as anyone throughout this, uh, I'm not sure what else practically could have been done. And I think, as I said, we do have to cut them some slack here. Well, Tony, as you mentioned, you were health minister in the Howard government. And I know you and I have talked about this a couple of times before, but I think it's important just to go over some of these issues again, because you were intimately involved in pandemic planning and response. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the plan that was there up until the eve of COVID-19 coming to Australia's shores was very, very different to the approach ultimately taken by governments in Australia. I think the plan that was there pre-existing COVID was pretty balanced and, and pretty reasonable. Um, and it's unfortunate, in my opinion, that that was dispensed with can you help us understand what were some of the main considerations that you had as health minister in pandemic planning and why is it that you think the state governments took a very different approach to, to the plan that was already there? The, the pandemic plan that was refined in my time as health minister and was essentially continued right through until August of 2019 stressed quarantine at the borders to slow the spread of pandemic illness uh, while we ramped up our health system to cope. Uh, but there was certainly uh, no thought in the pandemic plans of uh, widespread and frequent closures of schools, of businesses. Uh, there was no suggestion uh, back then of uh, the routine employment of stay-at-home orders. Um, there was no thought of health authoritarianism, uh, there would be uh, um, an improvement in health services, uh, there'd be the, the rapid establishment of services, uh, particularly fever hospitals to deal specifically with the pandemic disease, there'd be a lot of advice to the public, uh, but there'd be nothing like the draconian restrictions that in fact have been employed. I suspect, Dan, that one of the reasons why we went down the path we did was because this virus initiated in, uh, in Wuhan, China, uh, and the kind of uh, public health responses that you could expect uh, from uh, a communist government in, in Beijing uh, would be quite different from the kind of public health responses that you would typically uh, expect from uh, a liberal pluralist democracy 
such as us. So I think there's a sense in which what we did here uh, was culturally influenced, if you like, um, by what they did there. And let's not forget that um, if you stop life in its tracks, uh, you can make a dramatic impact on an infectious disease. Uh, the trouble is an infectious disease, once it's with us, is almost impossible entirely to stamp out. Uh, so to maintain a degree of freedom from it, you've got to maintain a degree of restrictions, which uh, um, would once have been regarded as unthinkable and which uh, large slabs of the population have found thoroughly irksome. Now, uh, what we have seen in countries such as ours is um, an, an added element of a political, uh, social, cultural fragmentation uh, between those who are happy to endure unprecedented restrictions uh, to keep, keep them safe uh, and those who absolutely hate unprecedented restrictions because it chafes against their sense of what a free society should be and what personal responsibility should be. So I think this whole period has been uh, pretty difficult, uh, spirit-sapping for many of us. Uh, certainly, we'll be living with the economic consequences uh, for many years to come, and I fear uh, that we are going to have uh, long-term change, which I would regard as change for the worse when it comes to a bigger government um, and popular readiness uh, to conform with um, directives that are vastly more detailed uh, and vastly more controlling than anything we would ever have expected outside of, um, outside of wartime. But just one more question on this, Tony, before we move on to another topic. And what you've said there I think is very important, which is about how the fact that this virus came from China uh, and, and, and the response that they had in China influenced the response in Australia. And I think there's been a few people that have observed that, you know, the whole idea of, of the integration of China into the global economic system and, and into international organisations like the World Trade Organisation and, and their growing role in international affairs was supposed to make China more like us. You know, they were supposed to become more liberal and more democratic, but some have observed that, well, perhaps we've become a bit more we've, like we've them. We've become more like them. We've yeah. become more like them with the with the response to COVID. Um, does this concern you? Do you think this is a long-term trend in Australian culture or is this a, a transitory issue in relation to the virus? Well, let's hope it's, a, it's an aberration. Let's certainly hope that, it's, that we haven't become more like them. <laughs> there's, there's absolutely no doubt uh, that uh, at the official level at least, uh, China has not become more free uh, as it has become more rich. And uh, uh, let's hope that uh, um, Chinese ways of doing things uh, will not become more prevalent in countries such as ours just because there's been uh, a degree of commonality in terms of dealing with this pandemic. Uh, uh, I, I have been... As you know, Dan, surprised, very surprised uh, that Australians have put up with so many restrictions for so long. It's good to see 
uh, that people are taking freedom seriously and are making their views absolutely obvious uh, to people. And I'm I'm disappointed that notwithstanding uh, the massive demonstrations that we've seen in Melbourne against uh, the the ongoing state of emergency um, and its proposed replacement, uh, that uh, it seems that an independent in the upper house has been found uh, to back the Andrews bill with a few more cosmetic amendments. That's right. Yep. Notwithstand- notwithstanding which, uh, once the Premier has declared a pandemic, uh, it will essentially be a health autocracy uh, with the Minister able to make any order reasonably necessary for public health uh, with almost no checks and balances. Yeah, indeed. Now, those protests you referred to are the demonstrations, Tony. I mean, here in Melbourne, it's been well over 100,000 uh, on the on the last couple of Saturdays. It's been very mm. significant and I think heartening to see a lot of people coming out, um, you know, to defend freedom and, and democracy. And you're right, this bill that is, uh, now looks like it's going to pass in, in Victoria is, is deeply concerning, as you and I have discussed um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, I did now want to turn to another issue, Tony, on, on the cultural uh, in the cultural space. And as we talk today, it is the last day of spring. Tomorrow is the first day of summer, and that means one thing, and that's cricket. Uh, cricket will be back. I'm very much looking forward to the Test Cricket and the Ashes series against England. Uh, the first test is in about a week's time. And I wanted to talk about the new captain, Pat Cummins. Um, no doubt he's a fantastic cricketer, great person. Uh, but I have been a bit concerned by some comments he's been making in the media about wanting to use his platform as test captain to campaign on issues like climate change and quote-unquote racial inequality. Some of what he said to The Australian a couple of days ago uh, and I quote, the game has a big footprint. He's talking about cricket. We fly all over the world in jets. We've got big stadiums, play under massive lights. The fields use so much valuable water. There's a lot we can do, end quote. Tony, I'm pretty uncomfortable with sports stars using their platform to campaign on issues that are ultimately pretty contested in the community. I think that sports people should be uniting us. Sports should be a place for us to come together. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about this development. What are your thoughts? Well, people are entitled to their views. Uh, even Australian cricket captains are entitled to their views. And if they want to tell us what their views are, fair enough. Uh, but uh, the cricket captain is an authority on cricket. He's not an authority on politics or culture, um, other than I suppose sporting culture. And there's no added... Uh, essential validity or weight to someone's views uh, just because uh, they happen to hold an unrelated position. I think the danger when sports people use their sporting prominence uh, as a political pulpit uh, is that it may turn people off the sport itself. Um, I must say, uh, when it comes to rugby, for instance, uh, the whole Israel Folau thing Certainly, it made me less inclined uh, to follow the, the national team and it made me less inclined uh, to go to the international games. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I love rugby. I've played rugby uh, for the first 30-odd years of my life. Um, some of the best friends I have are 
uh, people who I met through rugby. Uh, it's a wonderful sport. Sport builds character, but but I think we need to be careful about misusing things. And uh, as I say, uh, being a sports star, it doesn't necessarily make you the world's best human being, uh, and it certainly doesn't make you a guru on politics. And uh, I think if uh, uh, sport is used as a as a platform for other things. Um, it's it's not going to help the sport, uh, whatever it might do for the cause you're campaigning for. Yeah, I agree. I, I live in Melbourne, and I'm much more of an AFL, you know, fan than a than a rugby fan. And in many ways, the AFL is probably a bit worse than rugby in the in the virtue signalling and the, its engagement in cultural issues. And it does put you off. A lot of people are put off by it. And this gets to a bigger issue, doesn't it? Which is so many of the major institutions of our society of our civic society you know religious organizations sporting organizations community organizations they seem to be more and more inclined to engage in political issues and social issues rather than focusing on what the core you know what the core motive mission and vision of their organizations are and i think that becomes as you say off-putting but it also divides us quite a lot i think as a community um do you share those views I do, Dan, and I think the easiest thing in the world for uh, the CEO of a struggling business is to come out with some politically correct pronouncement, which will earn cheap applause, uh, which may well distract attention from deficiencies in the core activity. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of that uh, in recent times. Um, People... Uh, going for the cheap applause by aligning themselves to something which they think is uh, going to win them kudos uh, from the politically correct chorus. And look, uh, in the end, uh, if you're a sports person, your job is to be as good as you can be at that sport. If you're a business person, your job is to provide the best possible product or service Uh, It's to do the right thing by the customers, uh, by the staff, uh, by the shareholders. If you're a religious leader, uh, your job is to do what you can uh, to turn people's minds to the higher things, uh, to, um, I suppose, uh, inspire or evoke in people uh, a sense of the transcendent, um, a consciousness that uh, there is uh, more to life than the here and now, uh, that we're constantly, that we need to be better uh, tomorrow than we are today. Uh, um, And and I think that striking poses on the fashions of the moment uh, is usually at odds with the core business of whatever you might be in. So, look, I'm, uh, I guess you'd expect this from a conservative Uh, I am deeply sceptical of people who suddenly uh, discover the latest fashionable cause, uh, jump on the bad wagon, uh, make heroes of themselves, uh, short-term heroes of themselves, because invariably uh, their main job is neglected in the process. Well said, Tony. Thank you for that perspective. And well, that brings us to now what will be the final segment of season one of Australia's heartland. And I thought what might be nice for our listeners, Tony, is, you know, given all of your 
experience. You've had something like three decades in public life. Uh, you've been a prominent minister in the Howard government, minister for employment, minister for health, uh, then opposition leader and ultimately prime minister. And now you're one of Australia's leading public intellectuals in your role as a distinguished fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs. You know, I thought it would be a very nice note and an interesting note to end on if you could, you know, if you were looking back on speaking to your 30 year old self uh, with everything you know now and all of your wisdom and experience, what kind of advice would you give to yourself? It's a very good question, Dan. And I'm not saying for a second that everything I did was right and well advised. And I'm not saying that if I had my life over again, I would do everything identically. But I've got to say that uh, I've had a wonderful life so far, an absolutely wonderful life so far. And I think that the reason for that is that basically my instinct has always been to have a go. And uh, if in if in doubt, think as much as you can, uh, but in the end, take counsel of your hopes rather than your fears. And if your heart tells you it's right, uh, give it a go. I can remember in my first few weeks as an MP, uh, we had a, a kind of a politician's retreat at a resort on the outskirts of Canberra. Uh, it was not long after the 1993 election. Uh, the government uh, was, uh, was the, the opposition was struggling. Uh, John Hewson was still the opposition leader, but he wasn't doing very well. Uh, the mood was pretty, pretty glum. But I remember John Heron uh, saying to me, uh, the wonderful John Heron, uh, a senator from Queensland, a former Liberal Party president in Queensland, a surgeon before he went into parliament, a very good and decent minister for Indigenous Affairs in the early part of the Howard government. John Heron said, it's the things you don't do uh, that you regret in this business, not the things you do do. It's the things you don't say, not the things that you do say. If you have a go, uh, you might make mistakes, but you will also make a difference. If you sit back and wait for others to speak, if you sit back and wait for others to lead, well, uh, you're letting others make the running. Now, Fair enough, but do we want to be people who make a difference uh, or do we want to be people who simply go with the flow and uh, let ourselves be carried along uh, by a tide that others have created? And, and um, I just think it's if the, the world is a better place uh, where people speak their minds, uh, where people do their own thing and uh, let them speak their minds uh, respectfully. Uh, let them speak their minds uh, thoughtfully and um, based on all the facts they can muster. But in the end, let them speak their minds and let them do their own thing. Um, let them be them be themselves. And uh, I just think that great Australian instinct to have a go, so incredibly important. And uh, I hope that uh, when my life is finally over, uh, people will say, yes, he was someone who had a go and he didn't always succeed, but yes, uh, he made a difference. No, that's a wonderful note to end on, Tony. Thank you for that. And I don't think anyone would ever accuse you of not having had a go. Um, you've always been willing to give a lot of yourself in, in public life. 
um, in politics, in debate, in your role in um, volunteering. Um, and we thank you for that. And again, I just want to say thank you, firstly, Tony, for uh, getting up so early. I think it's something like 6am your time in, in the UK and our listeners greatly appreciate you um, doing that for us. And, you know, thank you for what has been a very enlightening few months talking with you. And on behalf of all of our listeners, can I say thank you for uh, the generosity of your insights, um, your perspective and wisdom and intellectual leadership is, I think, needed now more than ever, given the very significant challenges we face as a nation. And we are all very pleased and happy that you've decided to continue in public debate and continue engaging in uh, the debates of our time. Um, now as a, a distinguished fellow of the Institute of Public Affairs, and I look forward to all of the work we're going to continue doing um, in your capacity um, at the IPA. So um, thank you, Tony, for, for the discussions. And in closing, is there anything you'd like to, to say? Daniel, just what an honour it's been to have these conversations. And I look forward to starting again in the new year. And obviously, if the listeners have got any topics that they would like us to explore, uh, I'm all ears and I'm looking forward to delving into them. Fantastic. Tony, Thank you once again, and I look forward to picking up uh, this series again in the new year. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott, and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.